morning. Let us stand in honor of reading God's word. We're in our scripture reading this morning is Titus chapter two. We'll be reading the whole chapter. And Paul writes to Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be slandered. Likewise, urge the younger men to be sensible in all things, show yourself to be a model of good works. With purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in word which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us that, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at a little bit from it and a little bit from chapter 2 in just a bit. This is going to be a little bit different today where we're not going to work our way so much through a passage of Scripture, but what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be introducing uh, a a series, uh, hopefully short, we'll see, um, uh, that's setting the stage for us getting into Ephesians 5.22 and following, where we deal with the role of men and women. So what we're going to do is kind of look at some of these foundational passages like uh, Genesis 1, 2, and and a bit 3, and then build on that, or we'll be able to build on that. The writer Jesus and the apostles always went back to Genesis uh, to lay these foundational elements, and that's what we're going to do uh, today and, and next time. Uh, we'll look more, next week we're going to look more particularly into Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 uh, and to see the foundation that God has that He's laid for us on the role of men and women. God designed men and women differently, but both to be key participants in His program. And whenever we follow His design, we as a people, we as a church, we as families, as individuals, then we flourish. Women can know the richness of life that God has intended for them. Men can know the joy of carrying out the role that God has given to them. However, from the very beginning, Satan has tempted men and women to be discontented with God's design. He tempts women with feeling less than if they don't get to do what men to do. He tempts men with one of two things, either to abdicate their responsibility, and they think by that to avoid accountability, or 
to abuse their authority. And we, we see from the uh, Genesis account, and we get into chapter 3, how Eve stepped outside of her God-given role, and she made the decision herself to disobey God. Adam probably thought he was avoiding accountability because he could just blame the woman, and he did. But God held him accountable anyway because he didn't fulfill his God-given role. So what we're going to be looking at is, is this, and again, in an introductory way, but I want to start establishing this, that God designed man to, to serve as leader, protector, provider, he designed women to serve as a giver of life, a nurturer, a helper. And, and I want to say with that, before we go on, and I'll keep repeating this, but there, that's God's design, okay? And there are going to be exceptions. God does not ordain that everyone get married. He does not ordain that every woman have children. And He's sovereign. He decides how and when He's going to, to work in those ways. And so we'll talk about... How does a man, how does a woman fulfill God's design if it isn't that, what we might say, the usual uh, way? And, and we'll see that it's still the same thing And if you understand what God intends for us in both of those, in those roles. And, and so we need to understand that both men and women are equally created in the image of God and and if you if you press them, everybody will admit this because the Bible says it. But it gets de-emphasized sometimes. Both men and women were given the creation mandate to subdue the world, to to have dominion over the earth. We both received that together, and we are together to carry it out. Uh, so look with me, Genesis chapter one. We'll just look at a few verses. So we kind of see what we're talking about, and this is the foundation, and we'll develop it more next time. But if, uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, to start out, here in the creation account, God, Genesis, or Moses has told us here in Genesis 1 about uh, the day-by-day creation, and then verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them, and here's that, mandate to have dominion. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, turn over to Genesis 2 and we'll begin in verse 18. Genesis 2:18. Here where Moses takes another shot at this creation account and looks at it in a little more depth. Verse 18, Then... Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So he had created Adam, but only Adam at this point. And the only thing that God said that was not good about creation is for man, for Adam to be alone. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. 
And out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is God's basic design. So we read there in those first two chapters. However, and I'm going to paint these things in very broad strokes, so just bear with me. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. We could do that, but uh, I want to quickly get to a certain point. So I'm going to paint in broad strokes. So, however, throughout history... Men often abuse their God-given authority. Now, sometimes they abdicated their authority, the, the role they were given. But very often they chose to abuse their authority. <clears throat> Satan had to have been pleased to muddy God's design. But, and of course, we're fast-forwarding quickly through history. Uh, at the Reformation... When that happened, there was something very key, and this is what made all the difference. People returned to the Scriptures and actually believing the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures. That made all the difference in the world. <clears throat> After the, the church <clears throat> churches were moving away from the Scriptures, the Reformation, through that, God brought them back to the Scriptures. So now the Bible was being preached more widely than it had in a long time. Reformers, Puritans, and their progeny preached the Bible. They believed the Bible. And when they did, they taught God's design that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, the deceiver was still at work. Various ideas and movements... Enlightenment and modernism and all those different kinds of things in Western history began to erode people's trust in God's Word. And in the 1800s, all of those various movements converged in a way that we know it looking back as as 19th century liberalism. And what it did is it would shake people's faith in Scripture. Mainline denominations fell prey to it. Their preachers treated God's Word as outdated literature that can be interesting. It's sometimes helpful. They said it's sometimes wrong, though. And it's definitely not authoritative. In other words, we don't look to God's Word to know how to do life. We don't look to God's Word to how to do church. So with the Bible out of the way, or so they thought, standing on the shoulders of liberalism came feminism in the early 1900s particularly. 
And feminism's been there since, you know, Eve, so when, when she decided to sin. So it's, it's not like a brand new thing, but it became a big thing in the early 1900s. God's original design was rejected. They, they said it was just the words, the Bible, it's just the words of men who are trying to keep women subservient. They thought, well, now we know better. And sure, uh, on the one hand, feminism did respond to uh, abuses of men throughout history, and those abuses were real. And they did, in part, respond to that. And, And those things should have been dealt with, and oftentimes weren't. But it was deeper than that. Because they wanted to put an end to God's design once and for all. See, feminism saw the Bible as keeping women from being like men. In one sense, that's true, right? Uh, But what they thought, and I've said this before, and I'll say it plenty of times more, to the feminist, a woman's worth is in becoming a man or becoming like a man. That's what they believe. That a woman, uh, you ladies who are wives, moms, keepers at home, um, you know, you can't find fulfillment, happiness, unless you become like a man. And that's a tragic lie. And feminism saw the Bible as trying to keep us from that. And well, in a sense, the Bible is trying to keep us from that lie. But they thought that the only hope for women was for them to become like men. Even many popular popular preachers of those uh, the early uh, 1900s they bought into that lie because they had abandoned God's word. When you abandon God's word, then you don't have any um, standard to go by. And you listen to things, and it's like, well, that sounds right. That sounds good. And, yeah, there, here are these problems. And I, I guess, okay, if, if, if there's a problem with men abusing women uh, in their relationships, then maybe this is the, the solution. <clears throat> and that's exactly what Satan wanted. And, and just to say, too, that you know, Satan is quite active. But he's not sovereign. And we'll see throughout this, just like that high point in the Reformation, that God did a work in in that very, very dark time, coming out of the medieval times where, um, I mean, it was just spiritually dark. And yet, God would shine the light brightly. And He would take somebody who was completely lost, and buried in that darkness in a monastery and shine the light of the gospel on him and then God would use him to shine the light of the gospel on the world around him. And so, Satan is not sovereign. And one day he'll be defeated once and for all. Well, like I said, in the, the early 1900s, even a lot of popular preachers bought into liberalism and feminism. 
and but it, it was confined mostly to the mainline denominations that had abandoned the Word of God. But it started getting into evangelical churches, churches like ours. And then again, God shined the light brightly in what we look back and call the battle for the Bible in the 1970s, where churches fought back and said, no, the Bible is God's Word, and it is not full of errors. And so liberalism said, no, the Bible is full of errors, and so you can't trust it. And people said no. Christians said no. And they fought back. And many churches and their preachers rediscovered that God's Word is inerrant. It's not full of errors. They would later be reminded that the Word of God is also authoritative and sufficient. It does speak authoritatively to how we do life, do church, all that. And it is sufficient. It tells us everything we need. We don't have to go outside to um, psychology, sociology, any of those things, philosophy, to figure out how to, what does God want, to, want from us or how should we live. Well, so what Satan did is he repackaged feminism. Okay, they, you know, godly churches had rejected that, so he said, okay, let me, let me repackage it. Because they wanted to appeal to godly churches, conservative churches, churches that actually stood on the Bible. And so what became known as evangelical feminism was that, okay, yeah, we believe the Bible, we're going to stand on the Bible, but we want to make that Bible line up with feminism because they assumed that feminism was true. Feminism says that men and women are equal and the same. In other words, women are just like men and they should be able to do everything that a man does. But the Bible teaches that we are equal but different. Equal is very important. We have to get that right. And we're going to see, we're going to come to that. But we are, although we're equal, we're equal in value, equal in worth before God. But we're different. That should be apparent. Okay? But to feminism, it's not. So, with this repackaging of, of feminism into uh, evan, what they called evangelical feminism, which really shouldn't be two words that go together ever. Gospel is what evangelical means. And feminism, which is against God, that those should not go together. But they, they tried to repackage that. And they started making inroads to churches. Conservative leaders knew that they needed to respond. Denny Burke, looking back, says on January 19 and 20 of 1987, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, S. Lewis Johnson, Susan Foe, Wayne House, and a handful of others met at Dallas Theological Seminary. And then they met during that time at the home of Wayne and Lita House to strategize a biblical response to a rising tide of feminism that they perceived within evangelicalism. After that meeting, then Wayne Grudem would would tr kind of rough out uh, a draft of a theological statement, something that, like our creeds, that we could say, this is what we believe and this is what the Bible says, this is what we stand on. 
Piper would then take that rough draft and write the initial draft. And so in December 2nd and 3rd of that year, they met in Danvers, Massachusetts to finalize the statement. They were joined this time by Bill Mounts and Lane Dennis, Kent Hughes, Gleason Archer, Tom Edgar, and Ken Sorrells. Piper was the main drafter of what would become known as the Danvers Statement. And just an aside, kind of a fun fact for Connie and me, uh, Wayne House and Ken Sorrells were my professors, and Ken Sorrells was a dear friend of Connie and mine. We met his house a lot, many times, together a group that he uh, was pouring his life into us. Other council members of note... Just so you, this is not just something that a few unheard of people were working on and agreeing to. Okay. Other council members that you might have heard of: Robert Godfrey, Richard Mayhew, out at Masters, Doug Moo, Ray Ortland, on the board: D. A. Carson, D. James Kennedy, John MacArthur, J. I. Packer, and R. C. Sproul. And you have this wide variety of conservative theologians who worked on this and agreed to it. And one of the things that you'll see is that while some would like would would like the have the inverse statement to have gone further, what they were trying to do is saying, okay, what is something that, for example, MacArthur and Sproul could both agree to? Because they agree on almost everything. There are a few things they don't, but they realize that they're in the same family, they're in the same camp, and what can we agree to? And and so that's why it ended up the way it did, and why um, one of the reasons I mentioned, too, why uh, that Wayne and Ken were... Uh, professors and Ken, especially a close friend or a good friend, um, is that we were in the thick of these things back then. And when I read some of the younger folks who, uh, I know old Codger, right, talking about the young whippersnappers, right? But when I read some of the younger guys criticizing what happened then in, in this Danvers statement, make it sound like, uh, we didn't really know what we're doing. Those of us that were standing up for these things, those who were working on it, and that everybody's sitting around trying to figure out how do we compromise with evangelical feminism, and they say things like that. That is not at all true. Because we witnessed debates on campus as Sorrells and House stood for what the Danvers Statement laid out, which is what God's Word teaches is his design. Fierce debates erupted over, should we, should they allow women into the THM and THD programs, programs that were designed to prepare men for the pastoral ministry and to be able to teach at Bible colleges and seminaries? Should women be admitted to those programs? Those fierce, those were fierce debates because there were people that felt very strongly on both sides. And and so the folks who were standing with the Denver Statement uh, group were saying no, they they should not. If this if the program is designed to uh, 
train pastors and to train those who will teach pastors, then no, women shouldn't be in those programs. But there were others who said that, no, they should. And then there was the the follow-up question, which are also very fierce debates. If we do let women into those basically pastoral programs, then can they be on faculty at seminaries and teach in those programs? The debates in, in, you know, those were tough times. It wasn't the only thing that we had to deal with in those days and not the only thing that was uh, hotly debated there at seminary. But one of the things that that came out of all that is that there were some battles that were lost. Um, some Bible colleges and seminaries gave in and started accepting women into the pastoral programs and then producing women pastors and having women teach pastors. Um, but there were a lot of ways in which God worked through that. Uh, schools like Master's College, Master's Seminary, and a number of others, some of the Baptist schools, coming back to the Word of God and teaching it the way that God laid it out. A lot of those things happened. Wonderful things where uh, men are being trained the way they ought to to stand on the Word of God. And they could be prepared to uh, arm their churches with what God's Word actually teaches about these things. So a year after the Danvers Statement was published, that group at Danvers coined the term complementarian to serve as a one-word label to represent their understanding of God's design for men and women. Because, you know, whenever you say, okay, I believe, then it's like, okay, what do you believe? And, you know, we all say, well, I believe the Bible. But, I mean, every group says they do, right? Uh, The evangelical feminists said, oh, we believe the Bible. And, And so it's nice to have a short label. To say, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminian. We know immediately what you believe, okay? And, and so, they came up with the term complementarian. Now, I realize that that word is a mouthful. And it's not a word that we use very often, unless you're talking about these things, maybe. Could, there have been a, could they have made a better choice? Uh, they considered the term traditionalist, but they rejected it because it's like we're, we're not promoting tradition. We're promoting God's word. And so, no, we don't want that word. What about hierarchical? Okay, that is true. And they agreed that God's design for men and women does have hierarchy to it. But they didn't feel like that that communicated enough. The term patrocentrism was suggested, but it didn't catch on. And there are others that I'll talk about later on that have kind of tried to revive that. And then some came to prefer the term patriarchy. Now, and we'll come back to that. So the word that we're using that I'm talking about right now, complementarian, it is, uh, as you'll see on the next slide, from the word complement, not with an I, okay? Complement with only E's. That which completes another. That's what complement means, okay? The man and woman complete each other, okay? It's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a suitable helper, 
it's not compliment saying something in admiration, okay, with a compliment with an I. So whenever I'm talking about complimentary, complementarily, complementarianism, all those big words, I'm talking about the compliment with the ease, okay, that which completes another. And let me quote four of the ten affirmations from the Danvers Statement so you know what I'm talking about. And I want you to notice that our equality as male and female, man and woman, our equality before God is listed first. Okay, the Bible teaches that, number one. And this is from the Danvers Statement. Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. These are going to be important elements that we'll develop later. Number two. Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are, are, are ordained by God as a part of the created order. So God designed us male and female. Number three, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall. It was not a result of sin. And, and we'll, we'll come to that later on, but... Uh, the evangelical feminists say, well, you know, th- this whole thing about male headship, it, was, it came about because of the fall. And that's not true. We'll see next time that it was a part of the original design. Okay, number five, I'm skipping to it. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, so it's not like the Old Testament got it wrong and then Jesus finally, you know, corrected that. It, it's not that at all. They're both saying the same thing. That they, they manifest the equally high value and dignity, there it is again, which God attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community, that is the church. <clears throat> so those core beliefs, and there's ten of them, and I didn't want to go through all of them uh, today, but those core beliefs allow for differences between like-minded members, such as MacArthur and Sproul. Okay, how, how can they sign the same thing? Okay, so Denny Burke explains what he calls mere complementarianism, obviously uh, a riff off of C.S. Lewis. Uh, by mere, he means core, the core of complementarianism. He says it teaches that God has designed male and female as equal and different. They are equal bearers of the divine image, equal partakers in the grace of life, and equal partners in the creation mandate. None of this precious equality diminishes at all the biological and social differences that God has woven into his design of male and female. These beautiful differences are not contradictions, but complements. They are a part of God's magnificent plan to make His glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So what about the term patriarchy? That's getting a lot more attention these days. People are embracing that and they prefer that term. What about it? What do you want to say about that? And so what I'm going to be getting into here is not a criticism of that term, but a, that we need to see, for one, that they have some some valid and important concerns, but they also need to work on defining it a little better, okay? Um, because I'm going to show you there are so many different people that use that term that we wouldn't agree with, okay? And, and so if you want to use that term, that's fine. Um, but... 
it's going to need to be defined a little better or a little more strictly, I think. So generally speaking, those who prefer the term patriarchy over complementarianism, they agree, and this again, generally speaking, they agree with what I've said so far from uh, complementarianism, but they feel that it doesn't go far enough. Okay, And so within complementarianism, and this is true, I mean, we all have kind of a, an umbrella, broad umbrella, but within complementarianism, there are those who are narrow and those who are broad. And I know this. some of you may be like, you're losing me, John, but hang on. Okay, narrow complementarians say that the Bible only addresses that, uh, the role of men and women in the home or family and in church. It doesn't give any, you know, guidelines or, or even laws or anything like that for... Uh, men and women's roles outside of those two institutions. Okay, or some of them would say, some narrow ones would say, there are things we can learn from the Bible on that and can apply, but it's not explicit. Okay, now broad complementarians do go further. And now again, they're not all cookie cutter. They will believe at least some form of one or both of these. One, that women should not be charged with Protecting roles, like protecting men in combat roles, uh, police, or even to be president because that person is the commander-in-chief, you know. And so there are broad complementarians who would say that uh, while they well, they would say a woman shouldn't be the president because she would be commander-in-chief. And so we should not be, you know, men handing a woman, say, you know, here are guns, protect me, Okay. Um, that's to abdicate their responsibility. Uh, and then there's also this, women having authority over men, such as in the workplace or politics. And, and of course, there's going to be uh, differences, again, within that. Some hold this, some hold that, some more strongly than others. Um, you know, if women are in the workplace, are they not allowed? Will they not be allowed to have a, to be like a manager or supervisor over men? You know, if they're over women, that might be okay. So there's there's a lot of different you know nuances to this, um, and we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about some of that. What about politics? So some would say, well, as long as she's not over, you know, men in politics. But then others would say, yeah, but if she's in politics, she is over men because you know if a woman is on city council or is the mayor or you know is in the Congress, well, she's making laws that affect guess who men. Okay, and so some would say, well, she shouldn't be that either. So, so there are these different um, things that we have to think through, talk through, that are important. Um, and complementarianism has said, we want to, we don't want to, you know, say that here's this one way, because we realize that those of us who are in the same camp, basically, those of, who are, of us who are conservative, and particularly those of us who are reformed. There's some different views, and so we want to be able to work these things through, talk about these things, and we should be able to debate these things, okay? But folks who prefer the term patriarchy, they say that, that they would like those things to be clearly stated in the position that we hold. So whether we call it complementarian or patriarchal, patriarchal or patro, patricentrism or whatever we end up calling it, that they want that stated in the position on men and women's roles, and to not leave it up for debate. We should be able to say, this is what we believe, okay? Fair. The problem with that is there's not a consensus 
as to what those who use the term patriarchy mean by patriarchy. How much further should we go? And so let's go to the next slide. And what this is, is there are a few people who would believe all of that. Um, But you'll, as you read through that, you'll see that, okay, I could be okay with that. Now, some of you may not be okay with any of it. You know, I realize that. But some of you may say, I'm okay with the first one, maybe the second one, but not after that. Or I may be okay with, you know, this one, but not not that one, that sort of thing. So I I hope we all have a problem with the last one, uh, that uh, men are um, superior to women mentally. Um, We should have a problem with that, okay? We... So where do you draw that line? And, and then I've shown, I'm showing you there, too, there's an overlap with broad complementarianism. So, so if you like the term patriarchy, and that's fine, you should see that maybe you really agree with broad complementarians. So, in other words, you know, if somebody wants to be complementarian, you shouldn't have trouble with that, right? Um, that's probably where most of us fall, I'm guessing, but I haven't talked to all of you about these things and, you know, and these specific things. And there's more. I, I couldn't put it all on the slide. There's still a lot more. And there's nuances within each one, okay? So, so for example, um, and I can't read that, so I'm going to have to walk over here. <clears throat> um, first, you know, women may not be in protective roles like combat, police, why are we handing, you know, a woman and men saying, here, lady, you know, protect me? Um, women should not have authority over men in the job or politics. Some people would say, okay, that's maybe where we need to draw the line. Um, women should not hold outside employment. Some folks hold to that, that they shouldn't be working outside the home at all. Others would say, well, they can work outside the home, but, you know, maybe if it's part-time or maybe if it's, you know, she's doing everything in the home that God calls her to do, then then that's okay if she works part or maybe full. Um, some say there should be no age-based classes. It shouldn't be Sunday school. There shouldn't be well-versed kids. There shouldn't be youth. Um, some are saying and today even a lot there should not be women's Bible studies because they say women should not be allowed to teach women uh, Bible and theology. Women should not be allowed to vote. That's bouncing around out there, okay? And then, of course, the men are mentally superior to women. Um, we should have a problem with that one at least, okay? So, With this term, and that's why I'm saying, if you want to use that term, you need to work on defining it a little more particularly so that you can say, I, I like the term patriarchy, and I, I understand why you like it. But what I mean is this, and what I don't mean is that, right? Okay? Um, because there are some of these things that we would not endorse, uh and so some of these things are coming out of those who have uh, an interest in theonomy or Christian nationalism, and we wouldn't endorse those, um, although some, I know, hold to that. But some of these are extreme views that we would reject, and we would reject the things like, for example, uh, patriarchy has been used a long time by, the, by Bill Gothard and his movement. Well, we want to reject that. Okay? A vision Forum, another thing, Doug Phillips, you know, we want to re- reject a lot of that stuff. Um, and so, 
what I'm saying is, let's try to better define some of this, okay? So that when you use the term, people, you can say, this is what I mean, okay? So, all that said, those who hold to the term patriarchy are rightly concerned And this isn't the only thing they're concerned about, but this is a big one that they are concerned about and we should all be concerned about. And so this is something we can take away that is very helpful that they are trying to to draw attention to is modern male passivity. Uh, There's a lot of discussion about that, right? Think about it in, in our world. Where, where men are just saying, okay, you know, ladies, if you want to lead, do it. You want to go, you know, take bullets in the army, that's fine. I don't want to get shot. You know, if you want to serve as a, as a police officer, you do it. Because, again, I don't want to get shot. <clears throat> Whatever it might be. Uh, complimentarian Kevin DeYoung <clears throat> explained it this way. He says, Patriarchy rightly conceived, and that's what I'm trying to get at, is that if we conceive of it rightly, it's not about the subjugation of women. Some people who've used that term, that is what it's about. But he's saying if we do it right, that's not what it's about. As much as, as it is about the subjugation of the male aggression, in other words, being, you know, abusive and abusing our power and that sort of thing, and... It's about male irresponsibility that runs wild. That irresponsibility that runs wild when women are forced to be in charge because the men are nowhere to be found. <clears throat> That's one of their chief concerns right now, and they're right to be concerned about that. And we all should be concerned about that. And this is even in churches that men, what they're concerned about is irresponsible men. And oftentimes in churches, the men just like, they'd rather just sit back. And I remember growing up for a while in our church, uh, things fortunately changed for the better. But for a while, to be a Sunday school teacher meant that you it was going to be a woman. Because the men, that was, well, it was women's work. Where do you get that? I don't know where they got that from. Um, fortunately, that changed. But to where it's like, okay, men can teach Sunday school too, right? So <clears throat> that's the kind of thing they want to want to correct, rightly so. So next week, I plan to take us through Genesis one through three to examine the foundation of God's design for men and women, and we're going to further develop this idea of complementarity and consider some of the main criticisms made against it. And then we're going to look at what it means for men to be created in the image of God. So, uh, for Father's Day, I'm going to be talking like I did in Mother's Day: women in the image of God. We're going to talk about fathers in the image of God. What does God intend for men to be? So, not fathers, but men. What does God intend men to be? In his plan. We'll we'll consider then probably uh, the charge by feminists that men who believe the way we do, they say, and they claim that they have data to show, that men who believe the way we do are more likely to be abusive. Okay? Now, you're probably gathering that I'm going to show that that's very wrong. But... There's a challenge for us that we can take away from that, men. Okay? 
And then later we'll talk about men and women in the church and some other related issues. Um, so we've got a lot, and I've been, you know, I've asked the elders, you know, pray for me because there's so much material to try to wrap my head around. You know, and I've been studying this, you know, since those 1980s. That's a long time. I know a lot of you can't think back that far, but... Um, <clears throat> And, and yet it's still daunting. There's so much and there's so many ways you can slice and dice this. And, you know, you, you think I, I've got my view. Okay, well, I can quickly shoot some holes in there because it's kind of like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Because it, it's really intricate and it's hard. Okay. But we want, it's important. We need to work it through. And so I want to lay a good foundation that will get us in as we get into Ephesians 5.22 and following. Uh, that we we see what God's foundation is from His Word, uh, and that Paul was building on. Well, the steady attack throughout history that I was talking about, the, the attack by the world and by the devil, it can seem overwhelming. And you can take away from that, like, well, you know, let's just give up. Except that God the Son broke into human history. He broke in to die for his people's sins first. He even died for us believing the world's lies. When we repent, he forgives us. And that's why he continues, God continues to bring his church back around to believe the truth. Jesus died to redeem us for God. And he died to restore us to God's design. And that's what we can think about now as we come to the Lord's table, as we think about the cross, we think about what Jesus did. He died for our sins, died to redeem us, died to restore us. And so think about that as we partake.